Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. Here at Libations and Lamentations, we believe that all people are theologians, whether they like it or not. As such, we hope this podcast will help to refine and shape the theology of the church, particularly lay men and women, toward a more orthodox and articulate expression. Greetings, podcast listeners. We're glad that you can join us for our second episode of Libations and Lamentations. To begin, I'd like to open with the prayer from the Anglican Catechism. AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Like Jay, I'd like to welcome you to this, our second episode. Um, We've done an immense amount of show prep, um, and by which I mean we are totally recording this with, um, basically, we're just going to go through the first part of the catechism and see how it goes. Um, So this may end up being the great lost episode of Libations and Lamentations. If it is, we will be sure to make reference to it, which will confuse you, the listeners, in the future. Um, If not, then my ad-lib here has just totally spoiled the joke. But uh, I'm going to kick things back over to Jay, who is going to explain a little bit about how the first section of the catechism is structured, and then we're going to kind of informally go through uh, the questions that are laid out there. Yeah, absolutely. So the AJ kind of mentioned in our pilot episode that catechisms are a traditional method of learning the Christian faith. Uh, They very often took the form of a Socratic discussion, which is question and answer, back and forth. Um, But they, you know, as Christianity took shape for really the majority of its life between 300-ish AD when Christianity was um, made legal within the Roman Empire until I mean, really, I would say until the 18-1900s, um, at least in the West, you could reasonably assume that everybody had grown up with at least some knowledge of the Christian tradition. And so the catechism was really geared toward, let's give you the basic fundamentals of the faith. And so that's the structure that the current catechism takes. So it goes through the Ten Commandments through the Apostles' Creed, um, and it goes through Lord's Prayer. through the Lord's Prayer. And so those three, Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, are kind of the, I'd say, the bedrock of Christian living. Um, you know, they're not the whole totality of Christian orthodoxy, theology, doctrine, what have you, but they're really what's, they're what's necessary. They bring you to Christ. Um but the way the you know most catechisms that we're most people would be familiar with are shaped is geared toward people who are living in this Christian environment. They're being shaped by the church not only in a catechism class, but at home, in the world, in the marketplace. Everywhere they go, the church and Christ are never too far from mind. But so when when this catechism was written, they added a section that is, was kind of assumed that everybody knew, and it's the gospel. Uh, part one of the catechism is called Beginning with Christ, 
In the introduction, it writes, This catechism is designed to make clear to everyone what it means to be a Christian. It lays out what is essential for Christian faith and life, and it will open for you the door to knowing Christ. And it will lead you to full involvement in the life and mission of the church as you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And it will anchor you in the full reality of unquenchable joy, beginning in this life and ever increasing in the life to come. So just to pick up on some of the stuff that Jay mentioned, first of all, one of the things that's great about the way the, this catechism is structured, and you'll see this in a lot of other catechisms too, is that it flows from the Apostles' Creed to the Lord's Prayer to the Ten Commandments. And you can think about those three building blocks in this way. In the Apostles' Creed, we affirm our belief and our trust in who God is, the nature of God, what he has done for us, and what that looks like and, and how that constitutes the church, which is the, the area in which we um, we interact with, with God, the area in which we are, are developed as Christians, right? And so then you move into the Lord's Prayer, and prayer is about us listening to God and speaking to, God, to him. So this is the, that relational aspect uh, through which we are, are communicating with and being deepened in our relationship. And then the Ten Commandments demonstrate to us what our lives should look like, how uh, the, the pattern to which our life will be conformed and into which our life will be transformed as part of our relationship with Christ. So uh, there's there's a real symmetry and a real structure, I think, to the way the catechism works, where it begins with an affirmation of who God is. It flows into the relational aspect, and then at the end of it, we get to this, this pattern of life uh, to which we'll, we will be conformed. Uh, as we'll talk about moving through this, it's never a perfect, um, we're never perfectly conformed to that pattern of life. We, we are, are never completely able to do this on our own. Um, and as we'll, we'll discuss, and for, for Anglicanism, there's a response to that in the liturgy, uh, in our order of worship, that constantly is bringing us back to an acknowledgement of repentance and a receiving of Christ. And so I think that there's, there's a real structure in the catechism that follows kind of the structure of the Christian life. And for us operating in a non-Christian context, or a context that, that can't assume that Christian background, we start by putting, or ACNA starts by putting the gospel right out front and center. So Jay, let's dive into these questions in section one uh, and start talking about the gospel and what that means and, and why that's the jumping off point. Yeah, so like AJ said, the gospel is the jumping off point. Literally the first question of the catechism is, what is the gospel? In response that the gospel is the good news of God loving and saving lost mankind through the ministry in word and deed of his son Jesus Christ. Now I think for me growing up I kind of always thought of gospel as specifically something that I did a reaction from myself where I turned to Christ or something along those lines but I think the catechism puts it really well that the gospel is God loving and saving mankind through his son. You know, that's the key to everything. Everything is through Christ, in Christ. And so when we think about the gospel, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 does an incredible job where he says, this is the gospel, and then he lays out to us the life of Christ. You know, as a lot of us will say in our communion liturgies on Sundays, what is the gospel? But the gospel is that Christ has died, 
Christ is risen and Christ will come again. So it's this idea that the gospel is the good news of God loving and saving lost mankind through the ministry and deeds of his son, Jesus Christ. And I think that really is good news because if the gospel depends on something that I do, as Jay said, this is such a common thing that we often think as as Christians. We want a sort of a self-made religion in which we are the primary actor, in which we are doing things uh, to reach out to God. But if that's the gospel, that's not good news because then it, de- it depends entirely on our own efforts and on our own work. But the good news is that it doesn't depend on us. It depends on what Christ has done for us. And I think that's really what will get hammered home as we move through the rest of these questions. Absolutely. So question number two is, what is the human condition? I think this question really answers part of part one that says God came to save lost mankind. Obviously, if he saved us, it implies that we required something to be saved from. So the answer to what is the universal condition is that though we were made for fellowship with our creator, we have been cut off from him by self-centered rebellion, which leads to guilt, shame, and fear of death and judgment. This is the state of sin. Mm. Christianity, I think, is unique among some of the religions of the world and philosophies of the world in its anthropology. Anthropology is the study of of humanity. And Christianity has this profoundly um, paradoxical anthropology, I would say, an anthropology that's intention. And that's brilliantly reflected by the answer to this question because it emphasizes two aspects, that fact that we are made in the image of God. As it says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, says, says God. And the Catechism describes that by saying that we are made to be in relationship with God. We are designed to be partaking in the divine relationship, to be with God, to be in a relationship with God. That's what we were made for. Right? And that's a profound statement about humanity, about the dignity and the importance and the, the reality of, of humanity and the goodness of human life that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet there's this other aspect of Christian anthropology, that that image of God is horribly broken by sin. And that is also reflected in in this answer. Yeah, you know, I think the, the Catechism does a really good job describing what sin is. In our post-Christian, quasi-Christian world, I think the, the word sin has taken on a whole set of meaning that applies to a lot of people more as a, this moralistic, legalistic, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And if, you, if you've broken the rules, you've sinned. Um, whereas really what sin is, is us in our created image of God, turning away from God and turning into ourselves. Mm-hmm. As the catechism says, we were cut off by self-centered rebellion. So it's not so much that we woke up one day and looked at a list of rules and said, I'm going to break these and now I'm sinful. But it's rather that we inherently want to turn in on ourselves. We want to be so focused that really a question three actually says we want to alienate ourselves from God, from our neighbor, from God's good creation. And ultimately that alienation actually alienates us 
from ourself, from the way that God created us to be as his image bearers. Yeah, I think it's so much easier um, to, if sin is simply a list of do's and don'ts, just don't take those specific actions. You know, don't have sex before marriage. Don't steal. Uh, you know, don't don't kill someone. Don't um, you know look at look at certain people in certain ways. And even if it's a very very long exhaustive list of things that you're not supposed to do, you know, don't eat pork and cheese together. Um, you know, don't do certain things on certain days of the week. And you can make that a very very elaborate list, but that's still a list of actions. And you could in theory follow all of those actions. But if sin is really don't be selfish always look to God first and put yourself second, it becomes much more difficult. So we tend to think of legalism, this idea of, of creating a, a legal list of do's and don'ts, as, oh man, that's that's hard, you're making religion harder. But you're actually making it easier, because you're making it at least theoretically attainable. And the catechism says, no, ultimately it's an orientation, it's a self-orientation. So AJ, question five actually asks, can you mend your broken relationship with God? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> exactly. No. We have no power to save ourselves. For sin corrupts our conscience because we are captured to our own will. And therefore only God can save us. Let's think about that list of do's and don'ts that I described just a minute ago. So let's say that you are somebody who um, you know, did not have sex before marriage. Okay, point of interest. We're not saying that, you, that this is not an important rule, and I'm not trying to say that I'm not saying that not having sex before marriage isn't important, but I'm just using that as an example because it's one that gets talked about, especially for for young people in, in their teen years, right? So you say that. Don't have sex before marriage. And you do that. And then you get married. But then immediately, isn't it so tempting to say, well, that makes me a good person, and start judging people who didn't follow that stricture? Well, then all of a sudden, the good act that you've done, the good thing that you've done in abstaining from sex before marriage has been corrupted by selfishness because it's become self-righteousness. We start judging people who didn't live up to that same standard. And so that's the danger of this, right, is that even our good works, the good works that we do become corrupted because they become self-centered. And I think that is a profound, a profound insight. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, I don't want to, we talked in our first episode, we don't want to delve too much into polemics. But, you know, this question of can you mend your broken relationship with God, you know, kind of touches upon something that's been very controversial in Christianity. And so I just want you, the listener, if you're not as familiar with doctrines and theologies to be aware of this, um, there are certain traditions um, that believe that you can actually willfully make a decision to intentionally seek after God and hold your own will captive. Um, this would be kind of known as a radical form of Arminianism. If you actually want to know more about Arminius, he didn't actually believe that. Um, but there are radical forms of this. We'll say, no, you really can take hold of your conscience. Um, but then there's actually an opposite way that says, because, like we've affirmed, there's nothing we can do to bend our broken relationship, that therefore, since God has to be the one acting, that there's absolutely no action, no part for us, nothing that we remotely do. It's so much totally God that we're almost not even a factor in the equation. And that would be kind of a, you could call an extreme Calvinist position. Now, like I mentioned, you know, that's extreme Calvinist, radical Arminian. Both Arminius and Calvin kind of fall closer to the middle. 
and the broad stream of Christianity falls much closer to the middle, saying that, like this question says, we cannot save ourselves. We don't have that power because we're corrupted. But that when God extends to us the way of life, we are still called upon to respond. Um, and that brings us to what is the way of life. So the way of life, as opposed to the way of sin and death, is really us living into our vocation. Mm-hmm. You know, the catechism says that God desires to reconcile us and to make us citizens of his kingdom. And I think not just citizens, but if you look at the first chapter of Genesis, the call for Adam and Eve was to steward God's creation. Now, if, you know, if old monarchical political terms are vague for you, to steward something is to stand in the stead of the king. If you've ever watched the Lord of the Rings, or hopefully you've read it, um, you'll realize that when it talks about the stewards of Gondor, they truly are stewarding for the king, the true king of Aragon, his kingdom. They're standing in his place, in his stead, doing his role until the king returns in all his glory. That's our calling as Christian. We're called, as citizens of the kingdom, to steward the kingdom. You know, so when we talk about the way of life, we're really talking about God restoring to us the life that we were called to live, which is a royal calling, this glorious calling of stewarding God's good creation. And that comes also through Christ. And we'll talk about as we kind of move through this discussion of the gospel and this beginning with Christ. It is through Christ that we are enabled to be stewards. It is through him that we are given this calling. As we are his body, as we are members of his body, we are empowered then to go forth and be stewards and be servants of the king and proclaim his kingdom, but also have a role in in building his kingdom. And all of that comes through Christ. Christ is not only the 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 king you know he's he is in, in a sense our king he's also in a sense a steward for his father if you look at some of the parables and he's all because he is also uh, a, a human being and so he really is the way by which we are reunited we are reconciled to god in christ through whom we are empowered through through what christ has done and through the work of the holy spirit to go out and to be stewards absolutely and i think you know I'm going to give a caveat real quick for the listener. I'm reading the catechism. AJ is going completely off the cuff here because if you can't see AJ, you won't realize he's wearing sunglasses, <laughs> which is preventing his ability to see the catechism directly in front of him. Well, that's that's one of the things that's preventing him. Yeah, that, besides being blind, <laughs> yes. it's uh, that AJ just can't see from his sunglasses. Did we forget to so, mention that in the pilot? I think we did. Awesome. Yeah, so it's not actually important. Uh, AJ probably sees better than I do, but... He can't see the catechism in front of him, but AJ just answered for you questions 8, 9, and 10. So really, question 8, how does God save us? Well, God saves us by grace, which is his undeserved love given to me in and through Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, you'll be asking... So what? Who's this Jesus guy? 
Jesus Christ is the fully divine, fully human Son of God. He bore our sins, died in our place on the cross, and then rose from the dead to rule as the anointed king over us and all creation. Okay, cool. Aren't there other ways to salvation? No. The Apostle Peter said of Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. Jesus is the only one who can save me and reconcile me to God. Now you might be saying, that sounds pretty exclusive. What kind of guy, what kind of God puts forward this like very narrow, hard to get to path that's, you know, there's just one way? That makes no sense. But, you know, I've, I've dwelt on this a lot. You know, maybe it's being a millennial. Maybe it's living in a more post-Christian America where all of a sudden concepts like Jesus being the only way are questioned and unfortunately rebuttaled by even a lot of Christian denominations. And I think the shocking thing that I've discovered is that the claim that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life is incredibly inclusive. You know, all throughout human history, we've had different traditions that claim one thing or another. There are different sets of rules that we talked about, um, and they're all different, and they normally extend to a specific culture. You know, really, faith in Christ is the only time in history that something has broken in and said, it's not about you, it's not about where you're from, it's not about what you can do or what you've done for yourself, but it's about what I, God, have done for you and this gift that I've given not just for you, but for the whole world. That, to me, is an incredibly inclusive statement. You know, when I often have conversations with non-Christians, the concept, the question of hell comes up. Uh, and the question of, well, if I don't have this relationship with Jesus, am I going to hell? And I think that's that often trips up Christians, and, and we get often very nervous and very uncertain about this. And I think that um, in an, a podcast called the Anglican Studies Podcast, Michael McKinnon, who's an Anglican priest from Diocese of New England uh, and, and Canada, <clears throat> has an excellent response to this. He says, look... My job is not to judge and say whether you're going to hell because I don't know what God does. I don't know if Jesus reaches out to you in your last moment of life and calls you to repentance or not. My job is not to tell you how to go to hell. My job is to tell you how to go to heaven, and that's through Jesus. We are given a specific mandate as Christians, and that is to proclaim God's kingdom uh, and to proclaim the mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, and in him there is eternal life. So our proclamation um, is not to say, this is how you go to hell. It's not that we don't believe that, but our responsibility is to proclaim that Jesus is the way to heaven. Uh, and so, you know, I would say to people who ask me about hell, well, look, you can certainly, we can certainly talk in the abstract about people who've never had the opportunity uh, to know Christ, right? What, that, that's another question that comes up. What if people have never had the opportunity to know Christ? The easy solution to that is go tell them about Jesus, right? Instead of asking the philosophical question of whether they will be saved, like go, <laughs> go proclaim the gospel to them, right? That is the right answer to that question because that's not a philosophical question for us as Christians. It's a question of, well, if there are people who don't know, 
have we not been doing our jobs? Let's go do our job. So, you know, I think that there's a certain sense in which <clears throat> we have a responsibility. We should, we need to focus on that responsibility. And while it is not our, we do not have the authority to say to somebody, you are, you are eternally destined for hell, right? That's God's job. We do have the authority. We also do not have the authority to say, you can go to heaven some way other than Christ. And we do have the authority of them to say, to say to them, you are broken in sin, repent, believe in Christ and have a restored relationship in God in him, both now and for eternity. Amen. And that's what Romans tells us. You know, question 13 quotes Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that brings up something that I've always struggled with. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'll be honest, AJ, there are times where, I don't know, you know, the heart, emotions, it's not always, it's not been there. You know, how, how do we know that we've been saved? I would say there are a couple of answers to that question. One is, and I think this is an important uh, pastoral and, and even theological uh, dimension, the heart is more than just the emotions that you have at any given time. The heart is an orientation. It is an orientation of the broader self that goes beyond, I just don't feel it right now. Because let's be honest, as a Christian, there are always times when we just don't feel it right now. But it goes toward um, where are we placing our hope? There's a great quote by the, uh, the Swedish Lutheran Bo Geertz, where he even describes faith as an open or an empty, hungry heart yearning toward God. So sometimes even the absence is, is a sign of faith. But how do we know that we're saved? We can trust that we are saved because we can trust in the work that Christ has done through us. And we believe as, as Anglicans and as Anglicans formed in the Lutheran tradition that that trust comes um, through the sacraments. It comes through having been baptized into Christ, uh, as Paul says in Romans and again in Actually, I think he references it in almost every single one of his letters. He talks about being buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him again in the same. So belief of the heart comes back to this idea of faith and trust. I can tr have a, an emotional state of, of not being certain, yet still trust even in the midst of my, uh, my emotional state. Right? There's this great passage in scripture where it says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. How can you help my unbelief if I believe? Well, because there's on the one hand, there's a trust. I trust you, but I'm not feeling it right now, so help my unbelief. So that's how I've kind of always answered that question of, of the heart. Yeah, to me, what was the most you know, convicting growing up was Luther, uh, Martin Luther, when he would go through these times of angst, he would always, I mean, sometimes Luther, just in a very palpably, uh, physically shaken state, would say, get behind me, Satan. I have been baptized. Mm. You know, Luther recognized that it wasn't a work of his own, but that he was buried with Christ in his death through baptism. You know, Peter tells us in, uh, in one of his letters that through baptism, we've been saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not merely this external washing, but rather we have been immersed in the death of Christ and we can look to our we can look and say like AJ said Lord I believe help my unbelief how do I know that I believe 
Lord, I've been baptized, and I place my trust in your objective word. So that leads us now to the concluding questions in this section. Question 16 asks, what does God grant in saving you? I mean, really, the question asks, what are the benefits of becoming a child of God? And the answer is that God grants me reconciliation with him, adoption into his family, participation in his kingdom, union with him in Christ, new life in the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. I think as a conclusion, let's just go through each one of those and talk about kind of what it means and how it affects us and how it transforms us. I'll start with reconciliation. Now, if you ever had a broken relationship, uh, that concept of reconciliation is a very powerful one. Um, I think of, you know, in, in a marriage or in a relationship between parents, reconciliation is almost the beginning of a new relationship. It's almost what has happened in the past is behind us and we're moving forward in relationship together uh, into a new a new future. And I think that's profound given what is between us and God and the corruption that, that we talked about. That God is reconciling us to him in Christ and that that's, that's where this begins with God saying we are, we are beginning a new relationship. Um, and I think that ties directly into uh, the next one that that was, was mentioned. Yeah, so the next one is forgiveness of sins. And forgiveness of sins comes back to this idea of when you forgive someone your sins, and I like that they separate forgiveness and reconciliation because those are different. Forgiveness of sins is a no longer holding a sin against someone. This is important for us to do as Christians because when we as Christians hold on to sin, um, we are in some sense holding on to the sins of somebody else and that does harm to us. Now that's not the, the same for God, but for us what comes is the receiving of our forgiveness of sins. That is actually I think one of the hardest things for us to do as Christians. Um, sometimes it's such a, it's huge, a huge impediment is receiving the forgiveness of our sins in God because it also requires us to first recognize that we need to be forgiven in the first place. And once we have recognized that, the second almost difficult step is that God is capable of forgiving us. Um, and so we can go from this uh, you know, sense of arrogance of I don't need to be forgiven to a sense of despair that I'm unforgivable. Um, and so God, in forgiving us our sins and as we receive that, we're, we're cured of both of those things. And we come to a true sense of humility, knowing that we are broken and yet God has forgiven us. Um, and that, I think, is, is really transformative for us as, as Christians. So the next two, adoption into his family and citizenship in the kingdom. You were riffing on citizenship uh, before, so you want to take a little bit? Yeah, so, you know, I, when I think of these, I think of them kind of in tandem. You know, adoption into a family, that's when you truly think about being brought into a family, treated not just as, a, you know, some random kid you keep in your house and you give meals to, but truly as a part of the family. It's a beautiful image that I think all of us who have ever hungered for something deeper um, can really get ourselves attuned to. But I... I'm really passionate about that idea of the kingdom, mm. um, to become a citizen in God's kingdom. You know, the, the true vocation of a steward 
is not to be the king. The true vocation is when the king comes to step back, hand the kingdom to the king, and become once again a steward, or become a citizen, to rejoin his fellows, recognizing the authority and really the desire for the true king to reign. And that, to me, is a beautiful image. You know, I'm, I'm a type A personality. I like to do things, to run things, to be in charge of things, but that's exhausting. There's an incredible gift in thinking, at the end of the day, it's not about me being king. It's about taking what I've been given, the authority and the responsibility to steward, and turning it over to the true king and to step back and to be one of his citizens. So Jay and I are both Lord of the Rings nerds, and he talked about this earlier, and I think there's a really interesting contrast in Return of the King between Faramir and Denethor. You know, Denethor is a steward who wants, does not want the king to return because he has become used to and has really um, adopted the power of being steward for his own and has sort of substituted his judgment and his rule for the rule of the king. But Faramir has a very different understanding, and he really, um, you know, after he's healed, there's this great line where um, Aragorn says to him, rest now, and he says, but how can anyone rest when the king has come again? Mm-hmm. Um, and he is joy- so joyful in over- in turning over the stewardship to, to Aragorn. Um, getting to marry Eowyn probably didn't hurt with that. But, um, you know, there's this really profound contrast there. Um, and I think that's a question that we have to be asking ourselves too as, as Christians. Am I really <laughs> excited for and enthusiastic about the coming of the king? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the attitude that we, we ought to have as stewards. Yeah, it goes to the next ones. Do we truly desire union with Christ, new life in the spirit? You know, I think that's you know, union with Christ. God brings us to him and, and you know, we only have a few minutes left, but you know, that image of being brought in adoption is that Christ may be in us and we in him. That's the telos, the end state, the end goal for humanity. And it brings us to the promise of eternal life. And this is the only one I want to, I really want to, you know, mention for the large part of my childhood, I kind of imagine just the goal was to get off of the earth, get out of here, and go to some disembodied heaven. And so when I hear eternal life, that's what I heard. But the reality of scripture, the entire Christian tradition, and really the Jewish tradition, is our goal is the resurrection. Mm. It's to be reincarnated, to live a physical, real, bodied life but not some kind of reincarnation where you're something else, but you are you. You are resurrected anew. If you wanna read more on this, I recommend uh, Surprised by Hope by the Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright. But just this idea that God's promise to us is everything that we love about this physical world is something that is going to be redeemed and made new in incredible ways. You know, I love, we talked about feasting on our first bonus episode. I love feasting. 
I'll be real honest with you guys. If there's a sin I struggle with, it's gluttony. And, but that's because God made the human palate to love and enjoy good and rich food. You know, the crazy thing about all that is we were meant to enjoy it Mm -hmm. because we're created to sustain that enjoyment. And so when you hear eternal life, don't, don't look at it in fear of, oh, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. It's different. Look at what's around you, the good that God created and realize that the new heavens, the new earth are going to take all that God said is good and redeem into that which is very good. And we receive that through this union with Christ. And just to close, we will get into this more, um, and I think this kind of will help tee up the Apostles' Creed, which gets into this in, in a lot more detail and structured around this idea of the Trinity. Because it's because of the Trinity, the Trinitarian nature of God, that we are able to say two things. Number one, that God is love, because the Trinity represents the the divine relationship of love that has existed since before the beginning of time. And also that we are brought into that relationship through Christ. As Christ is united, uh, unites God and man, as, as we talked about in the bonus episode with Lancelot Andrews' Doctrine of the Incarnation, Christ unites God in man and also unites us to God in himself. So we can participate in that divine relationship of love, both as perfected in our best selves and eternally. So the irony is that in turning to God and away from ourselves, we actually become more ourselves than we've ever been before. We become our best perfect selves. Yet at the same time, we are also fully and profoundly participating in and united in this divine relationship of the Trinity through Christ. Uh, And so we share fully in uh, the divine relationship as he does. And as we get into, as we move into our next episode and talk, start talking about the Apostles' Creed, it is structured around that Trinitarian reality. So um, that's my little segue for the next episode. <laughs> well, shall we close in prayer? The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. O God, our Heavenly Father, you manifested your love by sending your only begotten Son into the world that all might live through him. Pour out your spirit on your church that we may fulfill his command to preach the gospel to all people. Send forth laborers into your harvest. Defend them in all dangers and temptations. And hasten the time when the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered in, and faithful Israel shall be saved. Through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. This has been Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. We hope you will join us next time as we continue to weep and imbibe throughout the church's year.